This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. This week on the show, we present a Skype conversation pre-recorded on April 19, 2019 with Brad Warner. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. He plays bass in the hardcore punk band Zero Defects. He's also the star of the movies Shoplifting from American Apparel and Zombie Bounty Hunter MD, was director of the film Cleveland's Screaming, and is a former vice president of the U.S. branch of Tsuburaya Productions, the company founded by the creator of Godzilla. Brad moved to Japan in 1993, where he began studying Zen with the iconoclastic teacher Gudo Wafu Nishijima. After a few years, Nishijima ordained Brad and made him his Dharma successor. Brad Warner, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Hello. Thank you for welcoming me. Well, it's, uh, thank you for showing up for us, and um, we will start with our usual first question for first time uh, guests on the show, and that is to invite you to cast your memory back to youth and childhood for oh, a God. moment, and um, sort of look at any experiences that come up, um, and maybe nothing will come up, but look at any experiences from that time in your life that you could say in retrospect, oh, that sort of point point in the direction that I ended up taking, in your case, with uh, writing books about Zen and, yeah. and teaching Zen, etc. So were there, any, were there any of these moments that you could look back at and, uh, uh, and say anything about? Well, there probably are, although it might not make a whole lot of linear sense. I was born in Hamilton, Ohio, although I, I don't remember anything about Hamilton, Ohio, because we moved to Akron, well, the, one of the suburbs of Akron called Wadsworth, when I was about, I don't know, less than a year old. But when I was, uh, so I had a normal sort of, I suppose, uh, rural Ohio childhood until I was, I don't know if I was six or seven years old when my dad accepted a work offer. I don't know if it was so much an offer as a, as a, order to uh, go to Nairobi, Kenya and <clears throat> work. He was working for Firestone at the time, the tire company, and they, uh, they wanted him to go to Africa 
because they had this factory in Africa and they needed people from the, the home office in, in Akron to go kind of uh, figure it out. And so he took uh, me and my mom and my sister uh, to to Nairobi uh, when when we were all well when when we were all little kids when I think about it now because they were uh, they were barely out of, well, they were probably in their late twenties by then I don't know and and I was six and well, six or seven and my sister must have been uh, she was two years younger so she was five or four I don't know anyway <laughs> really young and. And we spent the next four years in Nairobi. So I, I had this weird experience of growing up in, in this uh, all all white suburban Akron town and uh, and then being in Africa for four years and then getting plopped back into Wadsworth, Ohio. So that that must have affected me because I, I, I saw things in, in Africa that I wouldn't have seen. Nairobi at the time was very sort of politically stable and nicely run and it was uh, I've told other people this and they, they go wow that's, that's weird. You, you could drink the water, you could drink the tap water in Nairobi in those days. I don't know if you mm. could if you can now but that's kind of real unusual in Africa. So they, they had their, mm. their structure uh, down there and it was it was probably one of the most westernized places in Africa at the time but it was definitely Africa <laughs> you know it was no there was no mistaking that we were living in Africa uh, and uh, so I suppose I suppose I got exposed well I know I got exposed to other religions that I would not have uh, been aware uh, even of their existence probably at that age in in uh, Wadsworth Ohio uh, contrary to Obama-era propaganda. Uh, Kenya is not largely Muslim, but there are there are Muslims in Kenya, but it's mostly a Christian uh, country. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people were going, "Oh, Obama is is from Kenya," which he, you know, I guess his father was from Kenya, but uh, but therefore he's a Muslim. That's wrong. Uh, if you're if you're from Kenya, you're probably more likely to be a Christian than a Muslim. But but there were Muslims and there were Hindus uh, there. There was a lot of in- Indians there, and I know that that influenced uh, my uh, my life a lot because I saw these you know uh, Hindus and and one of my dad's best friends was was an Indian guy who who had pictures of Hindu gods in his house, and so that must have affected me. Uh, and we we came back to to uh, America, and I was uh, I'm not sure why very interested in religion. I didn't, my family was not religious, so I don't even know what, what religion we officially were. Mm. We were probably some kind of Protestant, but nobody ever went to church, and, you know, I, I, I guessed we were Protestant because we weren't Catholic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you could kind of, you know, nobody put uh, the ash crosses on their heads and, or anything like that. But so. you were seeing that around you, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, we saw that, you know, in the in the spring with the the Catholic kids in town. I don't, I don't, as far as I know, there, as far as I know, there was no synagogue in Wadsworth, and and so there wasn't certainly a mosque or a Buddhist or Hindu presence or anything like that in Wadsworth. Uh, so. I, I guess that's one thing. I don't know. Should I go through my whole childhood? <laughs> no, I, I, I think probably I, be pretty boring. <laughs> well, I, I think the question really is is. Uh, uh, how does someone growing up in Wadsworth, Ohio, uh, uh, end up actually having cultivating this interest in Zen and ultimately going over to Japan? Uh, well, yeah, that that I guess in in college, I, I went to college and I still had this 
interest in religion and and what the meaning of life was. So I took a couple of classes. Kent, I went to Kent State University. Right. You know, Four Dead in Ohio. You probably have to right. pay for that. I, right. I, for actually, that. Uh, while I was reading your book, I was uh, on a business trip and I stayed in the Kent State University Conference oh, Center. <laughs> there you go. So I was a. Uh, I was particularly and, interested there because I'm the, and I'm old enough to remember the song when it first came yeah. out, at the, yeah, and the politics of that time. So yeah, but today it looks very charming. Oh yeah, yeah, Kent. I mean, they've completely overhauled the campus in the last couple of years, so it looks it looks even weird to me. Last time I went there, but yeah, so I went to Kent State, and and they the, the this is kind of always funny to me. I don't know if it's funny to anybody else, but I took a class called Zen Buddhism at Kent State University. And this is the early 80s. And that, a class in Zen Buddhism was so wild and freaky to whoever administered Kent State University that I, it was not a for credit class. I didn't get college credit for the, the one class I took there that influenced my life the most. It's not on my transcripts. I got my transcripts a few years ago and I'm looking for it. I'm like, oh, it's not even there. Uh, so, but, um, it was in something they called the Experimental College. And the, the guy who taught it was Tim McCarthy, and he became my first Zen teacher, and he had been a student of Kobanchino. And Kobanchino Roshi was one of the first Zen teachers to come to America. Uh, Suzuki, Shunryu Suzuki, who wrote the famous Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, had come over and kind of by accident started a movement. I guess he arrived in San Francisco in 59. I just looked it up recently because I needed to put I knew, it. I knew it was right around 60, so I think yeah. that's right. And so by the by the mid-60s, he had this group of non-Japanese, because they'd sent him over just to kind of administer this little temple for the, for the uh, Japanese expat community in San Francisco. Right. Uh, or, or second or third generation Japanese people who, who were still following... Zen Buddhism, which, you know, they tend to drop off after the first generation uh, over here. But um, so that's all he was supposed to do. But then all these weird beatniks and later hippies started showing up at Suzuki's temple and it became bigger and bigger. And it was much more of a non-Japanese congregation after a while by the end of the 60s. So he asked, he, he called some of his friends back in Japan, some monks he knew, to come over and one of them was Dining Katagiri, and the other one was Kobanchino. Oh, okay. So, so uh, Kobanchino didn't become as famous as Katagiri because mainly because he refused to write a book. Uh, apparently, Tim told me his his students were all after Koban to write a book, and he was like, uh, "I don't want to write a book." You know, Katagiri wrote a book, Suzuki wrote a book, but uh, Koban didn't write a book, and. Uh, so he became the kind of lesser the lesser star in that little constellation. But he taught Tim McCarthy, and Tim McCarthy ended up uh, coming to Kent, uh, where he was. He was also from Ohio, so he came back to where he'd grown up, and and taught this class. And it just amazed me because I'd been looking at different religions, and I kind of looked at the versions of Christianity that were around me. Uh, people think I'm disparaging about Christianity in general, which I'm not. I'm actually quite interested in Christianity, but the sort of Christianity that was around in Northeast Ohio at that time was there was nothing in it for me. It was it was very, it didn't make any sense, and it, it just seemed kind of silly. 
Uh, and then I drifted over to the Hare Krishnas for a while. I wasn't ever a member or anything, but I started looking at that because that was the closest thing I could find to sort of Hinduism that I'd been that I'd been exposed to as a kid. But I, I thought, well, this is this is kind of silly too. Um, I could go on about why if you if you want to know. But but then um, I took this class on Zen Buddhism, thinking, oh well, I'll just see what the the Zen Buddhists have to say. And this one made sense. It it made perfect sense not not because it was religious it wasn't religious at all it was this kind of approach to life that dealt with the same areas as religions do but actually made sense and and was actually testable and and you could and you weren't you weren't expected to memorize doctrine or or anything like that you just did this practice and it you know it led wherever it led for the individual so so that's uh, yeah then i ended up in japan and um that's not a childhood story but i finally graduated after going to kent state for a while and then not graduating and then graduated from the university of illinois which is a long boring story it doesn't matter but after that i couldn't find a job i had a, a teaching certificate and a degree in history and it turns out they only uh, they they in ohio they only choose sports coaches for history teachers. <laughs> that's every 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 uh every every uh interview i you're, went to you're, you're reminding me of my high school days actually yeah. because that's who was the history teacher that's right i remember my history teacher i'm close to you in age and i remember that it was yeah, like yeah. The, the sports teachers were the history teachers and the science teachers yeah, yeah, that that's the way my high school was, and I I I don't know, I, I feel dumb for not having noticed that because I thought you could actually be a history teacher who taught history. So I couldn't get a job, and I had some interest in Japan, you know. Through I'd been doing zazen for several years by then, and I found out they were hiring English teachers uh, go to Japan and, and teach English, and and I had this huge interest on the side in Japanese monster movies. It was just sort of my my jam, you know, at the at the time. So I thought, well, I'm interested in Zen and Japanese monster movies, and I can't get a job anyway. So I applied for this job teaching in Japan, and that's that's what got me over there. After a year of teaching English in Japan, to n- not really good results. <laughs> it wasn't really teaching; it was just sort of almost babysitting job. And I. I was in a rural town in Japan. I moved to Tokyo uh, because I I looked into this company called Tsuburaya Productions, who made who were founded by the guy who invented Godzilla. It's a short version. Uh, nerds would dispute whether he invented Godzilla, but we'll just go with that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, I got that job. I, I I got a job I didn't know existed because I kind of sold myself to this company. It's, as their answer to all their dreams, and because they were looking to expand internationally, and I knew that because I'd been kind of watching what they were doing and reading about them, and I said, "I can help you expand internationally." And and by the way, I know all your shows. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. and you and you you have time in Africa as well as North America. Yeah, yeah. So got it. So I got that job, and then I was in Tokyo, the big city. The the thing about Zen in Japan is there are Zen temples everywhere, you know, and they're like like Protestant churches in America. They're just all over the place. But most of them 
aren't going to teach you how to meditate because that's not what they do anymore. They, they're basically, my, my Japanese teacher called them a guild of funeral directors because that's kind of what they do. They're, they're almost like funeral parlors with a little bit of a religious slant to them. That's what we've heard, that Shinto for the weddings, uh, Buddhism for the deaths. Yeah, that's how it goes. Well, actually, people go to uh, fake Christian churches for weddings, and Shinto is is more uh, for happy ceremonies, like uh, coming-of-age ceremony and all these other things. Mm. And they also do weddings. But they... Um, yeah, so so I I had looked at some temples when I'd been there, and I'd even sat in some temples, but it was it was weird. You just sort of self guided sitting that I'd done over there in Takaoka, Japan, because the the monks who lived at these temples weren't weren't interested in meditating. Really, they'd let you come and meditate, but they they weren't going to do it. So uh, in in Tokyo, I you know, put feelers out for any Zen teachers there. And I found this guy named Gudo Nishijima who taught these Zen classes in English at Tokyo University. In He was he he was an alumni of Tokyo University, and as such, they let him have a room on Saturdays to teach Zen classes to in English to perspective, I don't know, to, to, to anybody he wanted to. And so... So he was he was one of a group of Japanese Zen teachers who were kind of reaching out to the West because they they thought Zen had kind of died in Japan that it was no longer really viable over there. And, you know, and, so and Nishijima so, thought that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, uh, but unlike Suzuki and uh, Kobenchino and Katagiri, he never moved away from Japan. He stayed in Japan, but mm-hmm. he was mostly interested in in teaching non-Japanese people. He had he had some Japanese students, all of whom were old codgers, and then he had uh, a, a larger group of non-Japanese students of various from various countries who he taught in English, and that's where I came in, and we were all about 30 years younger than anybody in the Japanese half of his congregation or, or side of his group, you know, whatever he, I don't, congregation's probably not the re- right word, but, you know, students. Got it. Well, let me let me ask you something that that was, as I read, "Don't be a jerk," um, was uh, sort of at the back of my mind. I mean, you're you're able to not only translate contemporary Japanese into English, but also you're able to translate this 800 year old Japanese, apparently. So, um, I mean, obviously with help. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if you know. You're just gifted in in languages, or you really studied J- Japanese uh, extensively. Neither. Okay. <laughs> okay. Neither. You uh, just convinced us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I kind of approach it. I feel like I'm a real dummy when I approach this. I I lived in Japan for 11 years, and I worked for a Japanese company, so I had to speak Japanese. Right. Uh, there was there was no way around it. I, I was. I think there might have been four of us in the company who could speak English, and I was the only American. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a Chinese guy. Briefly, there was a, a French woman. Anyway, so most of the rest of the company was, was Japanese. So I had to, and they didn't speak English, so I had to speak Japanese. And one of my jobs there was translating publicity materials. So they'd hand me some publicity material that they'd written for Japan in Japanese and say, here, make us a version of this that will appeal to non-Japanese, which usually didn't mean necessarily Americans, but 
a lot of a lot of our business was with other Asian countries, but conducted in English. Yeah. Okay. So not only did I have to translate these into English, I had to translate them into English that was understandable to people whose native language was something else, was Chinese or, or Thai or whatever it was. Got it. So, uh, so I did a lot of that. And meanwhile, also studying Shobo Genzo with Nishijima on the weekends, and he had translated it into English. So, so I don't think I'm incredibly gifted with languages. I just had this background of doing that. And when, when I worked on Don't Be a Jerk and it came from Beyond Zen and some of these other things where I worked with the Japanese text, what I would do is I'd, I would go through Nishijima's original, his English translation first. And these days we are lucky to have for any given chapter of Shobo Genzo, Dogen's masterwork, 800-year-old masterwork, there are at least three English translations. I, I think my teacher's Nishijima Roshi's is the best, but of course I'm partisan there. But there's also uh, two other complete translations that exist. And then there are, are I don't know how many partial translations, you know, where people have cherry-picked uh, mm -hmm. chapters that they like. So I'm able to look at several different English versions and then if I find a lot of discrepancies in the English versions, and sometimes even if I don't, but definitely if I find a lot of discrepancies in the English version, then I go find that passage in the Japanese. So my Japanese is good enough that I can open up Shogunzo and find, mm -hmm. uh, you know, based on a, a decent English translation, I can find the Japanese that corresponds to that. It's, it's, um, so I guess that's somewhat, not everybody can do even that much. And then I read the Japanese translation, or I read the original Japanese, and try to figure out how these translators got to what they got to from that. I see. And, and the, the, it, it, the weird thing to me is, like, when Japanese people read Shobogenzo in its original Japanese, they're just baffled by it. They just go, oh, I can't make any sense out of this, Whoa. Uh, whereas I don't, it doesn't seem that hard to me, and that might be because I'm, I'm not so steeped in how Japanese is supposed to sound, that when I see it 800 year old version, it do, mm -hmm. it doesn't strike me as quite as well, freaky. I mean, I'm I, I'm imagining that maybe a comparison would be, you know, Eng contemporary English speakers trying to read Chaucer, which is, you know, he's a little bit later than, you know, yeah. Dogen, but well, but. but um, but then Chaucer's not speaking metaphorically and uh, right, know, right. throwing throw this language out that is uh, oh, well, kind I'll, of intended just... to trip your mind up. Well, I mean, it's the same one. The nouns and the verbs are, for the most part, the same uh -huh. in, between the two sorts of Japanese, but then the, the order is mixed up and there's some little filigrees that they used to put in that they don't put in anymore. And once you kind of learn what those mean, uh, it... And, and those are repeated over and over. You kind of go, okay, well, there's that again. And I don't know. I'm I'm, be, I'm nerding out, I suppose, a little yeah, bit. Well, but, but it's not that hard. At yeah. least, to my eyes, it's not that hard to figure well, let, out. Well, let me, let me uh, uh, just for listeners uh, of the show who may not be uh, quite as steeped in this material, yeah, yeah. Let, 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 let's just briefly yeah. outline who was Dogen and then um, uh, what is this show that we're talking about. And then we can kind of dive into the project of your book. 
Yeah, okay. Dogen was a Japanese Buddhist, Zen Buddhist monk uh, 800 years ago, as we said, in the 1200s. He was born in the year 1200, which always makes it easy to figure out how old he was when he did something, because he always writes the date of his composition of all his works, and you go, oh, wow, he was 45 years old then. Um, and he, uh, he, he, he lived at a time when Buddhism had been around in Japan for a few hundred years by then and was sort of part of the culture already. But Zen Buddhism was not. Uh, Zen Buddhism was a new thing. Uh, they had uh, uh, Pure Land Buddhism and Tendai Buddhism, and you know, if you're not a freak about Buddhism, <laughs> it probably doesn't matter. So there was this new form of Buddhism on the scene that involved meditation as its main thing. You, you'd think all Buddhism involves meditation as its main thing, but that's not the case. Uh, Buddhism started out as a, as a system of meditation, but kind of devolved into a religion. Uh, and, and in that religion, most people don't really meditate. But the, the Zen Buddhists uh, were kind of back-to-basics people who wanted to, to know what the original Buddha did, and he meditated, so they meditated. So uh, Dogen studied Zen in Japan for a little while, but it was, sort of, it was still so new that there was only, I think, two teachers of Zen Buddhism in Japan at the time, and he studied with one of them, but he, he kind of felt like he wasn't getting the, the, you know, the purest form. So he decided to go to China, which these days is no big deal to go from Japan to China. But in those days, it was a very big deal because a lot of people didn't, you know, they were going these little rickety ships that if you looked at them, you wouldn't even call them a ship these days. It was like trying to get on a wooden boat and, and sail across uh, an, an ocean that was notorious for its storms. It was it was crazy uh, to do this, but he he did it. Well, he and what, another. What, what wasn't wasn't that you know? It's like China was the big imperial power of the time. Yeah. Japan was a backwater, right? So yeah, he, that's it. Yeah, he's a kid from the backwater going to the big city kind of thing. That's exactly it. Yeah, that's also important to remember because the re roles have definitely reversed in modern times. But yeah, Japan was was nothing. You know, they Japan didn't count for for much of anything, and China was arguably at the time probably one of the most advanced societies in in the world. You know, even compared to contemporary European contemporaneous European society. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so he went to China, uh, and was at first. He he was also dissatisfied with Chinese Zen Buddhism because he thought, well, these guys are kind of degenerated. And he was about to go back home disappointed when he heard about this teacher that he hadn't met yet. And somebody said, yeah, you should you should check out this guy. And he went. And the guy's name in... The Japanese pronounce it Tendo Nyojo, but that's not how the Chinese pronounce it, but it doesn't matter. So he went to, he went to Tendo Nyojo's temple, and Tendo Nyojo... Up until then, Dogen had understood Zen in a certain way, which was that you did this meditation in order to have an experience called enlightenment, which so that Zen was the means, enlightenment was the ends, and that's and that's how it was taught. And so you were trying to reach for this brass ring called enlightenment. And although Dogen had a lot of interesting sort of spiritual experiences, he, he didn't feel like enlightenment was one of them, at least not this sort of uh, fix-everything moment. 
And uh, his teacher, this Tendo Nyojo, said, no, that isn't it. Zazen is enlightenment. The, the, the sitting Zazen is, is enlightenment, no matter whether you notice that it's enlightenment or not. And that clicked with, with Dogen, and he decided to keep studying Tendo Nyojo, and I think he spent about two years with Tendo Nyojo, and was given uh, what they call Dharma transmission uh, which is sort of authorization to be a teacher. And he went back to Japan and he started a movement. And and one thing that makes Dogen real interesting is <coughs> that he was a writer. <coughs> Excuse me. So when you read the teachings of Huineng, or I don't know if he's a good example, or it doesn't matter, when you read the teachings of fill-in-the-blank Zen master of the ancient past, what you are normally getting are the memories of the memories of people who remembered remembering somebody <laughs> taught something a long time ago. In fact, so we're talking I, about here. We're talking about almost every sacred text from every part of the world. Yeah, you know, before yeah. a certain date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so you're getting you know you're getting what might be what the guy you're studying taught, but who knows? In Dogen's case, he was a writer. He was very interested in in writing. And he composed his own pieces and left them for us to see. So we know exactly what Dogen wanted to say, at least in terms of the written word. Uh, we don't have any preservation of anything else, obviously, from that time, but we have his written words. So you can actually look and see what the guy said. <coughs> Excuse me. Dogen's also interesting because he, he lived and he taught in Japan, and he started a temple. And that temple ended up spawning another temple and, and kind of became a movement based on what he'd started, Dogen started. But the things Dogen wrote were not really part of that movement. And they, they were sort of considered to be foundational texts, but nobody read them. You know, very, very few people read them. I wouldn't say absolutely nobody. But, but reading what Dogen wrote was something that monks did occasionally but not not the other people who went to these sotos and temples would would, they, would would it be fair to say that it was only the nerdiest monks who would who would bother to do this yes that's that's correct so so uh, long about okay so you have in japan the meiji restoration which was uh, which was the subject of the last samurai the movie which actually got it fairly correct historically so you had this point where the Japanese were sort of scared into... They'd, they'd had this period of isolation, which is after Dogen's time, but did last a few hundred years, where they were completely isolated, sort of like North Korea is today. You know, they wouldn't let anybody in or out, and no ideas flowed. And then the Americans forced them to open their borders. Uh, so God bless America, you know. Uh, and the Japanese, seeing all this, particularly weapons technology that the Americans had and that the rest of the West had said, oh, we got to get our stuff together because these people could wipe us out. So they underwent, undertook this period of rapid modernization, of trying to, trying to catch up for 300 years of, of not <laughs> catching up to the rest of the world. And, and, you know, a lot of pain and strife came out of that. But one of the things that also came out of that is Japan was trying to make, make a, 
a pitch for itself as being as being worthy of entering into the the world of the the West, you know, as being on par with these other countries, you know, America, England, Spain, you know, whatever countries. And so there was a real push to find examples of good Japanese literature and so forth. And Dogen, you know, in this trawl to find things that Japanese people had produced that were worthy of study by the West, uh, Dogen's writings were rediscovered. And they started to be published and they started to become popular. Dogen, you know, we don't know exactly what sort of an audience he was writing for, but he was probably not writing strictly for nerdy monks. You know, I think he was trying to appeal to general people. And finally, after 800 years of these things languishing in in dusty rooms where nobody looked at them, they got to the audience they were intended for, you know, which is ordinary people who just happened to be interested in in spirituality and so forth in Buddhism. That's a great story, actually. Um, one of the questions I had, you know, because you, you go through this in Don't Be a Jerk, um, this, yeah. this uh, what you call twisted history of Shobogenzo. Yeah. And, and so, um, and, and what, what you say makes sense in terms of, uh, you know, you know it, it's, it's understandable that people would want to profile their own their own heritage yeah. if they're if they're coming onto the the world stage in this sudden way that the Japanese were doing uh, but um i'm i'm just wondering you know there's such a difference between the western philosophical tradition and dogen yeah. i mean yeah. and not least is the difference with the um the practicality of dogen yeah. versus, versus you know, you don't get you don't get a, a long chapter on toilet etiquette in in uh, Plato. No, you don't. <laughs> and and, and um, although that would be fun actually to see. But <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting. <laughs> but a perfect form. But I'm but I'm wondering. So as the Japanese are are putting forward Shobogenzo and Dogen's writing in general as as this contribution to mm. world philosophy, etc., do they? Do they appreciate this distinction, this practicality versus, and is that something that they that they wanted to foreground when this movement was happening? That's a question that came up from me as, as I was reading your your book. Well, I think so. I, I it, it's it's hard to say. I, I think the the first people that put forward Dogen's work were college, you know, university professors, you know, and their mm-hmm. their purview is is you know looking at it as a an example of an ancient religious text and so forth. Uh, but I think once it kind of got out there to the general public, people were starting to say, oh, these guys meditated, you know. And and they, you know, the tradition of meditation, I mean, it still exists. But, but by that time, it was, you know, sort of one of the things that Soto monks did, and they didn't do it very often. And Dogen puts it in the foreground and says, this is this is what we do. This is the most important thing. So I, I think people were seeing that. And, you know, my teacher was one of those people. He was born in 1912, I think, Gudo Nishijima was. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. It's close enough, I think. <laughs> uh, anyway, you can look him up on Wikipedia and find out if I'm wrong. But but he was born in the early 20th century. And so so he was a kid when all this was happening, and he started reading some of those books about Dogen, you know, as a teenager. 
and that's that sparked his interest in meditation and there were a few other people who were starting to to study dogen most notably there was this guy named kodo sawaki who was a who was a zen monk who was a bit older than nishijima but he he was also interested in getting back to what dogen had originally taught so he went around japan he 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 was kind of almost perversely refused to do anything but meditation, but zazen. Uh, so whereas the other Zen monks dealt with ceremonies and funerals and things like that, he wouldn't do with he wouldn't deal with any ceremonies or any funerals. He just taught zazen. And Nishijima was one of many people, and Shinru Suzuki and Kobanchino were also people who were interested in what Kodo Sawaki was doing and dining Katagiri was and and a lot of this cadre of people who later came to the US were were students of Kodo Sawaki as well as uh, Deshimaru who came who went to mm. France and did something similar right. um, they were all all fans and students of Sawaki so so I would credit Sawaki with with kind of bringing Zazen back and you know he he was marginally successful you know it seems like most of the people most of the prominent people who studied with sawaki ended up leaving japan although you know there's still there's still some of that sawaki movement still exists and there's still a bit of interest but i think there's much more interest in zazen as a practice in the west right now than there is in japan somebody ta- told me recently that the japanese are getting into mindfulness you know <laughs> perfect <laughs> yeah the, the the im what is it called uh, no I, I was gonna say imdb what's it called the no oh, the uh, ms msbr whatever the what john cabot did yeah exactly mindfulness the mindfulness becoming, stress therapy or something yeah yeah and that's becoming big in japan uh which that's, that's perfect it's just like oh yeah well i, I, I mean it, it's 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 one thing about this history that I find fascinating is that as w- Westerners introduced to J- uh, Zen, you think, oh, here's this tradition coming out of uh, Japan that's, uh, you know, ancient and, uh, you know, fully formed. And the story you're telling is basically it was more or less rediscovered or sort yeah. of uh, re-excavated. And then uh, the some of the roots or some of the best uh, 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 seed beds for it were outside of Japan. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's that's exactly it, and it, it became much much bigger of a movement. And and I, I, Japanese people went that I knew in Japan were always kind of, I guess, you know, they 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 have enough of an understanding of Buddhism that the fact that I went to temples and meditated all the time didn't make me seem like a, a cultist, you know, or right. you know, or, or, or that weird. But it was weird to them. Well, I mean, I, I have a, an experience. I play uh, shakuhachi. Oh, okay. And, and I have a Japanese teacher, but he left Japan in the 70s because uh, he couldn't, you know, take the musical scene there. And, yeah. And there are Japanese, you know, if you go to Japan and you play shakuhachi, people will be impressed because, you know, it's like you're doing this thing that's cultural. But yeah. I have the impression there's probably more interest outside of Japan now than there is in Japan. Yeah, yeah, the so, Japanese, yeah, Japanese musicians—they just want to play electric guitars, and, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I so. So you know, getting back to Dogen's writings, uh, you know, so Shobogenzo is the kind of the compendium of of uh, these writings which he put together. He he would actually write them, but often they seemed like they were uh, talks or drafts of talks that he was yeah. giving to his uh, students. 
So I think what I'd like to kind of frame now in this discussion is your book, Don't Be a Jerk, and okay. the unique way in which you uh, uh, take on this project of translating uh, Dogen into a language that is um, very accessible to a Western ear. And Actually, it kind of it kind of grabs the Western right. ear and insists on being heard right. as relevant, yeah. as opposed yeah. to something that a scholar would do. Because I, I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if I look at, you know, the books on Dogen I've seen, like I, I, I think I had exposure to like uh, uh, Tanahashi's A Moon and a mm-hmm. Drop, and. Uh, uh, then I think uh, in a book you even reference uh, we just we had uh, Sinchu Roberts on our show who has this whole book about Uji or oh, being, right, yeah. being time and the flavor of all of these presentations are very different from the flavor yeah. of uh, uh, well I, well I'll I'll just you know uh, one thing that struck me when as I was going through reading the book and I actually just happened to pick up and look at the cover. And there it says, a radical but reverent paraphrasing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I was yeah. wondering if you actually wrote that particular thing no, to put no, on the cover. No, no, no. But, but I think <laughs> it's a fair, but don't you think it's a fair, I mean, I think it's a fair. I know you would um, never say that, but. Um, but I think it's a fair characterization yeah. of, of, of yeah, your I don't, I, don't, I, I don't think it's wrong, but that's the marketing people at, at New World right, Library yeah. came up with that. But right. yeah, I, 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 yeah, well, let's see. I I like Tanashi's books and I like Shinshu Roberts' stuff and, and that that's the, that's the kind of stuff I read right. often, you know. But I can see where that kind of thing is you're 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 limiting your audience by doing an approach like that. You just there's Very there's much. only a certain kind of people who are gonna be able to even take that sort of presentation, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but there's and, a, and Tanahashi and Shinju Roberts are actually among the most readable. Yeah. Dogen yes. Books. Yes. But but I, I, there's another a piece that I I found reading this, and uh, we can get into more detail on specific chapters. But uh, you uh, don't really. I mean, I guess when I when I read some of the, <clears throat> you know, the older material that I've seen, uh, there's this. Um, the language is very confusing, and it, it doesn't seem like it. Uh, you know, it's you almost have to take it poetically, mm-hmm. and yet you uh, t- tend to bring it down to earth in a way that uh, is accessible, practical, usable, and demystifying in a way without yeah. without bleeding it of its mystery, if you will. Yeah, well, I I try. <laughs> you know, that's the that's that's the idea behind it. I, I just thought. Well, I mean, the whole trajectory over why I write about Zen anyway is kind of convoluted because I, I was also interested in being a writer from a, from a young age. I was, I was just thinking about, I was just looking at the news today and there was a, there was a story about how Pepsi Cola had this plan to, to, to uh, use satellites to make this giant billboard in space. This just came out in the news today that I oh, saw. I haven't, I haven't seen uh, and, and, and the, the, the thing that struck me as funny is in high school, I wrote a short story where that happened. It wasn't Pepsi, 
Mm-hmm. But it was these, it, it was like set in a future sort of dystopia where whenever you look up at the night sky, all you see is advertisements. You can't see stars or the moon anymore. <laughs> and one of them has become horribly misshapen and looks like a penis. So, you know, like, and so the story, the story was called The Giant Penis in Outer Space. <laughs> and, and, um, and it was sort of a satirical thing. And then I see this story, I'm like, oh my God, they did that. So, so from high school age, I was writing these weird, uh, vaguely science fictional stories and then I wrote novels and I couldn't get any of them published and uh, so both of my Zen teachers Nishijima and Tim McCarthy knew I did this and they kept saying you should write a book about Zen and I'm like I you know, write a book about Zen because I you know I would look at even the best books about Zen were the kind of things I could never write in a million years. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm not even putting down the writers you you mentioned because I could not write in that style if I tried, you know, and I have tried. I did, I, I experimented with it at one point, you know, I'll just write a, a straight book about Zen for once in my life and it collapsed after, you know, after a couple chapters, I couldn't do it. So, um, so I wrote this crazy book, Hardcore Zen, mm-hmm. which, uh, w- which I thought was an exercise in just writing a book until I could think of something else. Because I, I, if you're a writer, you get this kind of bug and you just have to keep writing. I don't know if, if that makes sense to, to normal people, but you know, once you get started, you just can't stop. And, and so I completed this book, Hardcore Zen, which wasn't even called Hardcore Zen. I called it Sit Down and Shut Up, which then I recycled as the title for my second book. But oh, that's, I, that's an interesting history right there. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, Wisdom Publications said nobody will buy a book called "Sit Down and Shut Up," and they came up with the title "Hardcore Zen," which is <laughs> which is good marketing on their part. But people did buy a book called "Sit Down and Shut Up," uh, so you know, right. there's something. Well, maybe there. maybe the wisdom maybe, maybe the wisdom audience is different than other publishers yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But but so so I wrote this book and I was I was going to put it away. Uh, I I kind of my my nephew was 14 at the time. I was interested in philo- philosophy, so I wrote the book at a level that I thought he could understand. Hmm. You know, so I was writing about Ben and, and always imagining Ben as my target audience. You know, would would Ben understand this? And then, you know, I'd write it that way. But when I finished it, I thought, well, this, <laughs> yeah, like like somebody's going to publish this. And uh, but it was just because I knew the process of submitting books to publishers by then, because I'd done it several times and got rejected, that I sent this out to like ten publishers. And I thought, well, once the, I, once I get ten rejection notices, I'll just put this away and go on to the next thing. And I got nine rejection notices and one <laughs> acceptance uh, notice. I got an email from Wisdom Publications saying we want to put this book out. I was like, really? <laughs> you want to put out that thing? But the thing is, I was trying to write about Zen for an audience of people like me. Like, I'm not a religious scholar nerd. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I am interested in those aspects of life, but, you know, I have to be really, really interested in a book about Buddhism before I'm going to deal with the, you know, the difficulty of, of reading it. So basically, I've read a lot of books about Dogen and, and not much about any other aspects of, of Buddhism, to be honest, because uh, because they're just written in this lofty, scholarly style that, that I, I mean, my eyes glaze over. Literally, somebody right. sent me a passage and say, what do you think of this from, from some scholarly book just this week? And I looked at it and I went, I don't, and it's about Dogen. And I'm like, 
And I've been studying Dogen for 30 odd years, but I'm like, I don't know what this guy is saying. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, and that, and that's a, uh, uh, I think an important point that comes through and uh, don't be a jerk because in your comment, you know, the way the book is structured, you'll, you'll, have a kind of a free translation of uh, Dogen, but then you'll have a commentary on that. And in your commentary, you are often talking about the translation process. And what comes yeah. through very clearly is that, you know, Dogen, you know, to say that Dogen said this or that is uh, problematic yeah. to begin with because yeah. it's medieval Japanese. And when you look at the translations that Japanese scholars like Tanahashi or uh, Nishijima have, that they're different. They're completely different. Yeah. Not to mention the uh, the the one that comes out of uh, Kenneth Roshi's organization. I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, that it, one's way different. The, the high church version. <laughs> but but the but it's what's interesting to me is like you also make a good case that Dogen was kind of a young teacher mm -hmm. uh, trying to impart to people who were not necessarily really sophisticated people. Yeah. I mean, like these uh, monks were, I came from the boonies and from the villages and it was a backwater country. So, you know, he's not necessarily speaking in this, this uh, lofty language mm -hmm. to people. He's, he's yeah. actually trying to be very direct. So yeah. in a way, what you do to make the language understandable to a 14-year-old young man is, is a more direct translation than trying to make it uh, understandable to 20th century or 21st century academics. That's Yeah, that's exactly right. That's, that's it. In a nutshell, Dogen was not writing for academics, you know, because there weren't, I mean, I guess there were Buddhist scholars at the time, but he wasn't concerned with them. He was concerned with speaking to his, his little group of monks. And yeah, and when you have this idea of, of Zen monks in medieval Japan, I don't know what people get from movies and, and stuff, but they were, a lot of them were teenagers and a lot of them were, were farm kids who really didn't have a, you know, they, they must have had some compulsion to study this crazy, thing but they weren't they weren't scholars and they weren't learned were, were there elites were there you know like you know sons of um there were yeah. so so it was yeah. a mix it was a mix so of there people. was there was a mix well okay. that's 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 the one interesting thing about medieval japan is is it's a very socially stratified country which had in effect something very much like a caste system the japanese don't like to talk about this but you know the the japanese really did have a, a caste system almost like india at the time and one of the ways you could get out of the caste system was to become a, a monk because monks were considered something else and they were allowed to have their own thing so so you had one of the rare places in japan at the time where you would have a mix of of people like that so there were there were some uh, uh smarty pants rich kids in in that mix but mm -hmm. you know it's hard to tell exactly who dogen's students were because we don't have biographies for for any but a, uh, a handful of them but i get the impression that you, you, you mentioned that toilet chapter and some of the things they say in the toilet chapters like don't don't write uh don't write stuff with the the poop stick on the wall <laughs> things like that you know and you're like you're like oh okay um that's uh 
That, that's probably not the, the son of the local uh, warlord. No, but it sounds, sounds like what uh, you might uh, tell a bunch of high school kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was, I remember reading that and being struck by some of the instructions, particularly in that chapter, and going, oh, I can see what sort of an audience he's writing for. He's not, right. you know, he's writing for people who didn't really even know how to use the toilet properly because they probably just went out in the woods, you know? Right. Right. Uh, and. And that's uh, that's what that's what you did in those yeah. days. But but so uh, just to use one example, like the title of the book, uh, "Don't Be a Jerk," refers to one one chapter. Yeah. And uh, maybe you could just briefly say you know how, how that chapter shows up in other renditions of Dogen, and uh, we can talk about why "Don't Be a Jerk" actually, to me at least, it it hits me in the gut as opposed to hits me in the head. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Don't be a jerk. Is uh, Shoaku Maksa is what it's originally titled by Dogen, and it's 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 kind of a hard phrase to translate because it sort of means don't enact wrong doing, uh, don't do it, and uh, so so that's the way most scholars uh, translate it. I, off the top of my head, I can't remember the titles but they're the, you know the titles are always something like uh, don't enact wrongdoing or yeah. something and it sounds very flowery and i just looked at it and i thought well he sounds like he's saying don't be a jerk just don't he's he's saying that evil is not something that i think he says something very much along these lines evil is not something that just exists out there in the universe waiting to be done uh, the only time evil is done is when you do something wrong, <laughs> you know, when when you act in a in a wrong way, and that everybody is capable of knowing when they're acting wrongly, which is a slightly controversial idea for for some in itself, but we can leave that aside. But but he says you know in, innately when you're going to do wrong, and so don't do that. Uh, and and I thought don't be a jerk was a good way to to say that. I yeah yeah I mean well that that's a like like I said the distinction for me is that uh, that lands in my gut where mm. I it's kind of precognitive like knowing like yeah we know when we're being a jerk yeah <laughs> yeah even, even jerks know when they're being jerks yeah that's it that's it and I and I think that's what Dogen is getting at he's not he's not putting forth this. This, I mean, it is sort of a lofty idea in a way, but he's he's trying to bring it down to just don't don't do those things that you know are wrong. Don't don't treat people bad. Don't you know when you are watching yourself in action? Don't don't do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like it. it, it he brings it down to the immediacy of the moment, which is don't, yeah. don't be a jerk in this moment because this yeah, moment yeah. is the only only time where it matters. And uh, I think people convince themselves of all sorts of things once. The, they start to conceptualize and create this framework of good and evil, and mm -hmm. uh, 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 it becomes something that's separate from what's happening right now. That's it. Yeah, and, and people kind of look at, at at that as as um, yeah, they they look at it as sort of a something you set up, and then I don't know. There, there's there's all sorts of reasons you can give yourself to do something you know is wrong. You know, and and history is is full of these things you know the most horrible atrocities we 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 often forget that people like i don't know the the nazis in in 
Germany in the 30s weren't sitting there rubbing their hands together and cackling and going, I will do evil, you know, because, you know, they, they weren't these cartoon people. They were, they were people who had an idea of a better world, and there were certain things that had to be done to establish a better world, and they went out and did them, and they turned out to be really bad things, you know. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not stumping for the Nazis here. I have to be careful, but but I am but I am saying that the 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 intention was not. I mean, you don't know individual cases, but the the overall intention wasn't to go out and do evil. But they were they were fooled by their own brains into thinking that this was the way to produce a better world, and, and we can often do that, you know. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a Skype conversation with Brad Warner. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Reverse Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Skype conversation with Brad Warner. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. I mean, one of the one of the chapters in uh, in your book that I really like is the the one where you ask, is, "Was Dogen a feminist?" Yeah, because uh, because obviously, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of a projection to uh-huh. to use that word as you discuss in your chapter about it. But 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 then you you make this argument that um, is very clear about how passionate he could be about. Um, rejecting, you know, behavior that treats uh, women in uh, as as inferior, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a really interesting chapter because there there had, well, you could go kind of a long way with talking about how Buddhism has traditionally treated women. You know, it right. was on the one hand one of the first, maybe the first. I haven't I haven't been able to find an earlier example. So. 
Besides I the, the, I think it's the first, as far yeah, as I would say. Besides the ancient matriarchal uh, religion that supposedly nobody even knows if it really existed or not in India, you know, five thousand years ago, uh, there is some argument that that this thing existed. Well, Are you, well, it's one of the it's certainly one of the very first world religions that is yeah, yeah. that configures itself as being relevant to people outside its original culture. Yeah, and that's number yeah. one, and then yeah, number yeah, two, yeah. and then yeah, and then number and then number two, um, you know, there's this this famous argument that gets settled in terms of yeah, women can actually do this. Yeah, 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 and that and that's what uh, that you know that the you know the conversation that Buddha supposedly had right. with his attendant over whether to admit women to the order, and the Buddha finally said yes, there you know there's no reason why we shouldn't. But I think Buddha, being a person of his time, the you know in the very stratified culture of India, he made separate groups. You know, the women right. and men right. had to practice separately, and and so by Dogen's time, a lot of that argument had been lost and kind of convoluted so he was looking at uh, you know it come it had come back down to women being second class citizens and there were buddhist places of worship that women were forbidden to go you know he puts out in that chapter an example of like uh, you know any drunken country bumpkin if he's a man can walk into these places but a buddhist nun cannot you know and and he said this is shameful of of our country to be to be treating people like this and he he makes a really strong argument that uh, that women are equal to male practitioners in in every way and if a woman has has uh, been um, ordained as as a monk or even a master then we pay that woman the same sort of respect that we pay a male master and he he does he kind of goes on and on about this and and that chapter was sort of that that was one of the most interesting chapters to do because I felt like I had to cut it down uh, mm-hmm. it, because I feel like people today kind of already know this stuff and Dogen just hammers at it you know and he he finds like you know a dozen different ways to say the same thing and and often in that chapter I was just I just cut it down to one sentence because he says it you know but, I mean but that that's what's uh, sometimes hard to appreciate is that. Uh, we hear this, and yeah, say, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, what, yeah. What, what, because as contemporary Americans, it's kind of in yeah. our, you know, steeped in our air right now. But in the 1200s in uh, Japan, yeah. actually, the radicalness of that is, I, I, it's hard to imagine what you know. It's like people would be, you know, be sort of like, uh, you know. T- Almost probably like talking about your pets or something, or your horse or your dog, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It might have been like that. And and I, we don't know what happened, you know, when he delivered that. I think that was one of the ones that was delivered as a speech. And I imagine the audience must have been kind of shocked (laughs) by that. You know, they probably hadn't heard that stuff before. So, uh, so in, in in a way, you know, he was. I mean, you, you can't call him a feminist because the word feminism didn't even exist, but mm-hmm. he's kind of on the in that direction. Well, uh, but the point I want to make also, I mean, where you you guys are, and I would agree, is is that there's a whole different uh, understanding of of you know genders and et cetera these yeah. days, and it's continuing to evolve. But um, 
but but there also remain pockets in our contemporary 21st century society where the position of women is not necessarily understood in the way you guys just articulated it and that oh, yeah. your, your chapter articulates it so it's so it's not like it's a um a dead a dead a, a dead issue yeah. Yeah, is, yeah. is the point i want to make no that's true that's true and there's things we can we can learn from dogan's attitude even now yeah for sure yeah, exactly. but at the same time uh uh, the whole configuration of sex and sexuality and, and sexual activity and, and even in Japan at that time and today is completely different. We don't. They, I don't <laughs> think there was the overlay of the uh, the Christian morality on that whatsoever. I mean, no, yeah, and that that's one thing that's sort of interested me in retrospect. Like, I don't know how Dogen would have. Dogen was never exposed to Christianity, as far as we know. Uh, and uh, he never comments about it. There were, there were, I guess, a few missionaries here and there at the time, but it doesn't seem like he encountered them. And yeah, yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't. And in Japan, I, I wrote a whole book about uh, called Sex Sin and Zen about uh, Buddhism and, and sex and and Japanese. Yeah, Japanese society just. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole. You know, you could you could do a whole book about Japanese attitudes towards sex and gender and and how different. It is. People in the West look at Japan and go, "Oh my God, this is the most sexist society in the world." Sometimes, and I and I have been living lived there. Would go, it's not exactly that, <laughs> you know. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit more complicated than than that. There are there are sort of understood ways of of behaving for the the, the, the genders, but there are also ways to subvert that that we don't have in our society, and it's sort of. It sort of works, <laughs> but that's a whole other topic, and I'm no expert in that one. Yeah, well, I, I want to turn the discussion to, to you, you know, you're, uh, as I understand it, I, I don't know what you're up to in the world in general right now, but as I understand it, you, you're a Zen teacher to, to yeah, I you guess know, so. In a, in a, well, but that's that right there is an interesting way to respond to my question. <laughs> <laughs> so here you are writing this book about. Um, this, you know, the the founder of the Soto Zen, you know, lineage, right? And um, and you're you are writing. I mean, to me, I read I read Don't Be a Jerk, and I'm feeling like I'm steeped in the understanding of someone who understands how to how to how to pass on Zen mm. in a way that. Um, a scholar does not. Okay. Well, maybe, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 you put it into a uh, fresh language or a, uh, you know, it, it becomes reconfigured into an original language, and that's usually a sign of understanding as opposed to when it's steeped in a language that becomes even more uh, obfuscatory. That's, yeah. that's usually an indication of uh, something else. Yeah, so, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I, 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 I don't know. I, I I mean I yeah I teach then. Okay. <laughs> I, I you know I was it's it's weird. My thoughts on what that means are are probably complicated too because it's not like being a priest or a preacher. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I, I mean I don't really. I only know one preacher and. Uh, 
I don't know exactly how they operate. I think this guy actually that I know actually operates more like I do, but I think he's also a bit of an iconoclast. But it's more like being a friend to people who are also interested in this. You know, I, I look mm-hmm. at it as if there's this sort of teacher-student relationship with Zen people, it's a bit more like an apprenticeship, you know, in the sense that that if you if you're into pottery you go and seek out somebody who makes really good pottery and you say can I come and hang out and watch you make pottery and wash your tools and if the potter is very nice they'll say okay you can you can hang out just don't get in my way but they're not they're not sitting there going now you do this now you do that you might get a lesson here and there but it's that's not the the point of the thing the point of the thing is just joining together with somebody who's already doing this thing and then, you know, kind of learning from that. Well, and that's the that's the interesting thing here is that, um, you know, you you make the point in in the book that uh, your teacher Tim McCarthy, his that his, I mean, you basically articulated what you represent him as articulating to you um, yeah. uh, as a as a student of his is this sort of radically non hierarchical yeah. relationship. And that's a very different formulation of how the teacher-student relationship might might be understood to work. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't. Tim was a <clears throat> an interesting example. Excuse me. <clears throat> is what you get for calling me early in the morning. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Tim, <clears throat> sorry, it's okay. Tim was an interesting example. He was he was and is uh, about ten years older than me. So we're we're not that like Nishijima was like fifty years older than me, so it was it was a different sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. Tim and I were roughly contemporaries, and he had no interest in hierarchies at all. Neither did Nishijima. He was he he find found that sort of thing pretty disgusting too. So I had these two teachers who weren't interested in that in teaching it that way. Although although in in Zen there's you know, there's no sort of agreed upon single way to do Zen. It's it's not it's not kind of it's not quite like the Catholic Church where there's sort of an understood way to do it. You know, there there are versions of Zen that kind of look like the Catholic Church in which there's stratification mm-hmm. and there's hierarchy and there's positions and and so forth. Mm-hmm. And but there has always been from the beginning of the movement, this undercurrent of people who rejected that or just didn't, you know, if they if they didn't outright reject it, they just didn't participate in it. They just mm-hmm. kind of did it their own way. And my teachers were were those kind, and they weren't interested in 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 you know the the teacher being I don't know this sort of font of of information that you get from or somebody that you worship or somebody that you look up to you're just supposed to you're just supposed to you're coming along for the same ride as they are and they've been on the ride a little longer than you so they can kind of tell you oh yeah coming up here is the is the bumpy part <laughs> you know but it's not, but it's not as if you know they only know it's the bumpy part because they they went over the bumpy part right themselves uh, uh, so they can tell you, yeah, they, uh, you're about to get to that bit. Um, but it's not like they're all wise and they're imparting their great wisdom to you. They, mm-hmm. They've just they just know where this is 
you know, they, they just have a little bit more experience. And that's, that's the way I try to do it. And people always, you know, people always try to put something else on me, on, on one who does this, I think, on anybody who does this. And, what, what, and do I, you mean, what do you mean by that? Put, put, uh, also, put what on? You know, I get, I get, I, I lead retreats all over the world. I'm about to, end of May, go out again for a month in Europe where I'll lead a bunch of retreats and I do them in the U.S. too uh, and Canada and other places. And, and at these retreats, a lot of people show up. Mostly people, some, I have repeat customers. I don't want to say customers, but I have repeat <laughs> attendees. But, you know, you always get these new people. And, and I'm guaranteed at least once in a retreat to get somebody who is looking for, I don't know, a, a father figure or, or something like that. Or they're looking for somebody to kind of defer all their responsibilities to I, I I think I have an understanding of how cults must operate, you know, from mm-hmm. from doing what I do because I see people who who really want to be led, you know, and it, it's a bit scary because they're like lead me, you know, and they they want to give you everything, you know, that and in exchange for for telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's really a lot of that, and and people who want that are kind of attracted to these these uh, weirdo religious movements like Zen, and and so I get a lot of people trying to to cast me in that role of of their their new daddy or their new or their new Charles Manson or something, you know, you know who's gonna. Oh, I hope you don't get too many of those. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, but I can see how that how it could go in that direction. You know, I've sure. seen some kind of troubled people who I think, oh, you know, if you end up with somebody who who does give you what you want, which is tells you what to do, you'd do anything. You know, I, I've met a lot of people where I go, oh, this person, they, you know, I could right. tell them anything and they would just do it. And and that's scary, and and I don't want that kind of power. I'm not interested in that. So so I I'm always frustrating to people like that. And and I've had some run-ins where where people who want that sort of thing, and I don't give it to them, they'll get mad. <laughs> you know, I had one guy a few years ago who was all over the internet denouncing me, and and I knew the internal thing that had happened between us at a retreat once and he was looking for uh he was looking for a cult leader and i was telling him i'm not going to be your cult leader and and he didn't understand that and so he was trying to brand me as this dangerous phony horrible person who had uh, done something terrible to him by not not telling him to go put poison gas on the Tokyo subways or something. <laughs> I think that's okay. what he wanted. That's, yeah. I got it. Um, well, then uh, that kind of leads me to another question. I was really intrigued. Uh, I think it's your last chapter in the book uh, where you where you write that um, you say Zen is a communal practice of individual deep inquiry. So yeah. a communal practice of individual yeah. deep inquiry. So, um, so what, I mean, is, I mean, uh, uh, first thing I would say to listeners, go read that chapter, <laughs> but, <laughs> but second, it's a little bit hard to, it, yeah. It, it, yeah, but second thing is, um, is there, is there a way that you, is, are there a few words you could offer listeners that sort of, uh, unpacks that a little bit? 
Yeah, let me see if I, I can, because it sort of struck me after years of studying Zen and practicing it that this is what we were doing. And I haven't seen anybody else say this. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I wish other people would frame it like this. Because I think the the Buddha, his genius wasn't that he wasn't the first person to meditate. You know, there was, right. meditation was already a long-standing tradition in India by by his time. And he he was just framing it in a radically different way, which was that he meditation was generally something you went off and did by yourself. You know, you, a forest dweller. Yeah, yeah, forest dweller is a good yeah a good example. I mean, that's what they they call it. Right. So you go off on your own and you meditate, and then maybe you come back into the marketplace and tell people what you learned, but it, it wasn't really as far as I know, a communal practice before Buddha's time. I mean, I, we could argue historically whether there were other examples, but, but what he did was he brought people together and said, let's, let's do this as a group. You know, at first there were five guys, mm-hmm. you know, who, who traveled around with Buddha and they meditated together and other people said, oh, look, look at those guys meditating together. Let's go, let's go see what that's about. And it became a, a movement. But, but, at the core of it is still the individual meditation. So the indi- the meditation itself hasn't changed. It's still a very personal thing. I mean, there are commonalities because all humans are much more alike than we think. <laughs> that, that's kind mm-hmm. of what I believe. I, I you know we're we're all we all say we we all have two eyes and one butthole and all this stuff. You know, but I think there's a deep deep commonality among human beings that that is largely untapped and and goes unacknowledged even when we act on it all the time and that's one of the things you discover in meditation that you can kind of sync up on the same on the same wavelength if you if you do it together or or if you even if you do it separately and then come together after having done it separately uh, that so so he he said let's do this in a group and let's let's work on this but when you are in a zendo practicing with other meditators your your experience is your own you know every mm-hmm. every experience is that's going on in that room is is different in a, in a way right you know it's the same experience in another way but it's also different and so because of that there shouldn't be any sort of indoctrination there shouldn't be any sort of like this is what we believe you know and and mm-hmm. and then you're supposed to align with that which is what religions generally do you know you have these things of but in in buddhism it's more most of those things evolved from just ways of practicing together i mean there's certain rules you had to establish in order that people could practice together and not get in each other's ways and not bother each other too much, so, you know. So you have you have a you have a certain rules and and sometimes they're very strictly enforced about how to behave in the zendo, mm-hmm. but um, but there are not many rules about what to believe. In fact, in the Zen tradition, there really aren't any. You're not you know you're kind of offered things. Dogen never really tells you what to believe. You know, he he kind of gives you insights he has had and offers them to you for 
for your amusement or whatever. What did, what did Rod Serling used to say on Twilight Zone? You know, submitted for your approval, <laughs> you know, whatever, <laughs> on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. I remember it well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, you know, uh, so he kind of he kind of offers it up as as something you can test out for yourself, but he's not telling you to believe this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did a I did a chapter. I think it's in Don't Be a Jerk about did did Dogen believe in reincarnation and does it matter if he did? Yes, yeah. <laughs> which which I thought is a good example of that because you can certainly find you can find references in Dogen's work that taken taken individually would argue for this is a guy who definitely did not believe in reincarnation and then two sentences later you can find something it goes this guy definitely did believe in reincarnation and mm-hmm. and you're kind of going well what the what the heck dogan um but he's he's because he's not telling you uh what to believe about what happens after you die you know i i come to the spoiler alert conclusion that he probably did believe in something you could call reincarnation, mm-hmm. although you could argue about whether it's what people mean when they say reincarnation. But he definitely did not think it was important to tell others to believe in this. I mean, you know? that that's a interesting thread in Buddhism that I think, for one one reason, it makes me think it, why it can be so successful in the the kind of the modern world as well. That it seems like Buddha was he didn't dispute the cosmology of the Brahmanic tradition mm-hmm. at the time that he was teaching, it, it's it's that he merely said that all the gods are, are impermanent. Yeah, yeah. So, so, the, the, you know, the, so that's not it, you know, like there's something more to look at. And it seems like even in a materialistic world that um, the injunctions of Buddhism hold up because, yeah. because it doesn't require a uh, commitment to a particular uh, belief framework. And yeah, yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. I mean, I think that's powerful. I I still have problems with atheistic Buddhism in a way, but uh, it, you know that's, that's a different kind of uh, issue because I think sometimes people take their belief systems and try to impose it back onto the tradition. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely true. So, so you know, to say that Buddha uh, uh, Buddha or Dogen, you know, is uh, believes in reincarnation is sort of the same as saying that uh, you know uh, 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 Buddhism is atheistic. It's a, it's it's kind of the same problem on two different yeah. uh, ends of the stick. Yeah, yeah, you don't. Yeah, it's and it, it, it and that's why the the thing that really attracted me to Buddhism initially, one of the things is that it didn't have any quarrel with science. You know, this this was important to me at the time. You know, I was eighteen years old or whatever, and I'd I'd seen a lot of religions that had big quarrels with science, um, where. You know, you know, you know the, the Museum of Creation in, yeah. in southern Ohio. That didn't exist yet, but there were people like that around who were insisting that you know Adam and Eve played with dinosaurs and all this crazy stuff. And you know, you, because they're trying to make it fit the, their cosmology fit the scientific evidence or something. I don't. I never really understood all of it. But 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 uh, Buddhism was like, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, if if it works if there was a big bang it works if if god created the universe in 7 days it's still it's still a practical thing to do so it doesn't it doesn't matter what you believe it 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 just it just doesn't and that's not and that's not what's important about this this uh practice and this philosophy yeah. and and yet uh there's there's 
within, as you d describe in Don't Be a Jerk, there are chapters of Shobagenza that are decidedly uh, out there in terms yeah. of... Like, uh, like, I, I'm interested, since, since we did a show on uh, Uji at one point, or Bean Time, I'm kind of interested in uh, your, um, you, you, you kind of frame this as uh, a, a Dogen going psychedelic. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you make of that uh, 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 chapter, and, you know, that, that whole description of time as being, being as time, and uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And how, oh, it's really, yeah. Uh... And then, then, and then, in a way, I'm interested in how you bring that back to the ground. Well, that's a, that's a real difficult chapter. And the the Shinshu Roberts, she hadn't written her. Well, I guess she was working on it, but it hadn't been published yet. So I didn't have that to look at, and I don't know how my interpretation jives up <laughs> with that book. But um, when you, if you just approach that chapter raw in even the best translation it looks freaky that's why i made all the psychedelic references you know it just seems mm -hmm. like this guy is just tripping out uh because it, it it says a lot of weird stuff but the core notion is is being in time so so there was this word in in japanese that roughly translates as sometimes and sometimes the translators just translated this sometimes that uji uji but if you if you pull apart the two characters it's being in time and dogen liked to do these sort of puns which is one of the things i think there's humor in dogen's work that's lost on us but mm -hmm. uh, I, and it's I, hard to say as, sure. a, as an aside you do a good job of actually pointing that out like no one else i've seen yeah, I'm not. I can't be absolutely certain that the things I'm seeing in Dogen are jokes. But uh, when I look at them, I think I think he's, he's joking there, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or he's you know he's making a kind of a clever reference that's going to kind of go, oh, people are going to go. It's not exactly laugh. They're going to yeah. get you know. It's going to be this kind of almost comedic reference. So he takes apart this word being in time and makes a joke out of it in a way and says being is time. So. So your existence and time are not two separate things. You're not a, a creature who exists in time, but that time and you are the same thing, which is a, a freaky thing, because we usually think of time as something that happens right. to us, you know? We don't want it to happen to us <laughs> sometimes. Uh, most of the time we don't want it to happen to us, but... But it happens anyway, and and we often look at it as as almost an enemy, you know, like this this uh, this thing we're, we're trying to fight against, especially in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the ravages of time that in yeah. Los Angeles, I imagine, are not popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, but but he's saying time is that we are time, and it's. God, it's really even hard to, to talk about because it's um, it's such a, a difficult idea to kind of get your head around. But I think he's right. I, I think that that what we are is a manifestation of of something the universe wants to do that requires time to make it happen, and so here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Now I probably just sounded like a a trip 
I tripped out personally. Oh, I mean, it's, it's it's morning. We'll give you a break yeah. for that. But yeah. but but I mean, it's, it's, it, there's a line in there about as I take it that the um, experience is like the self arraying itself out to basically look at itself. Uh, yeah, yeah, look at itself, and and in a way, these things are very basic. I for some reason that whole notion has stuck with me. I think I first ran across it in Moon and a Dewdrop, uh, yeah. uh, and the and I, I have training as a at uh, uh, one time you know uh, physics and there's oh. there's something of a controversy in physics now because the the uh, whole Einsteinian revolution was a mm. way of spatializing time so that time was kind of like taken out of uh, uh, was made secondary. Yeah. There's a few small voices, some some of them uh, with some renown, though, who are kind of trying to put time back in the center, like that time is the thing that's real. Everything else is uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, secondary or derived from that, but that time yeah. is the ultimate reality, and that... That feels more more right to me when I contemplate yeah. uh, Uji and and being and and time and identity and experience because it seems like it's hard to really separate those things. Well, there's a whole. I mean, he's he, Dogen is often trying to say the same thing over and over and over in different ways. You know, so he wrote the tons of words, you know, more than even I've read uh, that 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 often boil down to the same message. And and one of those messages, or part of that message, is that this separation that we feel between, we feel that we are a point, and we are an individual experiencing a universe that's out there, you know, and that, that we kind of appear on the stage at one point, and then we disappear from the stage, but the stage continues to go on, because that's that's how we framed it for ourselves but but Dogen is saying no it's not like that you're uh, you are the stage you know this is this entire universe that you're looking at is you which is like you you, you listen to that and you go well when I first heard it I'm like oh you know this that's stupid <laughs> you know I I don't know what I what I took it as when I first heard it but I I I, I was highly skeptical of that idea and I sort of stuck it in the back of you know of my mind and said well this meditation practice is useful because it makes me feel better you know i always tell people people say how do you meditate every day and the the thing for me was i noticed that every time i gave up meditating every day i felt crappy you know i felt worse and this is this is as a, a late teens early 20s person trying to get through what you get through in the in that age and every time I would just stop meditating, I'd be like, oh, this isn't any good. And so I'd go back and start again. And, but And that's why I did it. And I put all that cosmic stuff to the side because I thought, well, I just don't understand that. But after working with the practice for a lot of years, now I'm kind of come around to going, oh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the way it is. You know, I, I, I do... You know, I feel a, a separation. There's obviously you're in, where, Sebastopol, is it yeah. And and I'm in Los Angeles, and and we're not the same person, and uh, you know, but but at the same time, there's this fundamental aspect of the thing that's going on where it's just two aspects of of the universe, hating to sound new agey, but it's two aspects of this universe communicating with each other, and 
you know, it's led me to some freaky ideas about what a human being is. And I still haven't settled on any of them. But I, Dogen says something like, we are eyes and ears that it uses to examine itself. He has this chapter called Inmo, which my teacher translated as it, you know, because that's all, all it really means. Inmo is just um, a word for a thing you don't have a word for. You know, it basically functions like it, but but other people like to use words like suchness or thusness or something like that because they sound cooler. <laughs> but 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 he you know he's he's talking about this it, which in a way is almost like certain people's pers- ideas of God. This is why I said at the beginning I don't I don't uh, disparage Christianity as such because I know from now, from studying other versions of Christianity that I wasn't exposed to growing up, that there are versions of Christianity that look upon the concept of God as not like a father figure in the sky, but as something like what Dogen was talking about, as as this uh, underlying something that we are all part part of. You know, we're just we're just taste buds on God's tongue or something. That's yeah, one, yeah. one of the ways I frame it to myself. You know, so so God wants to taste. The, the universe, you know, that is himself, you know, he wants to lick himself, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> and we are well, both, think of, both. God's a cat. So, so, no, God and dog, dog is spelled backwards as God. <laughs> that's it, yeah, that's, so that's the message, and God put that message there so we, yeah. Could, yeah, so we could taste it. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, so the only way that God experiences the universe that is him, her, itself, is uh, is by entering in, into it in a in a manifestation that feels as if it's separate and it's walking around on the inside, but it's not really walking around on the inside and it's not really separate. It, that's just an illusion, and you can kind of overcome that. I don't think you can ever fully overcome that. This is one of my other theories. Uh, I don't think you can ever fully overcome that feeling of, of being separate because that's the sort of manifestation that human beings are. But you can also see through it and then operate in a different way. And yeah, I mean, well, I think you, you know, where you speak about um, enlightenment and delusion are sort of coexisting. Yeah, yeah. Are you going to? Yeah. That, 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 that was my ne- okay. that was my next question. <laughs> because, <laughs> because, because sometimes because we, uh, we are the yeah, same mind. Yeah, yeah. somewhere the same mind, but but one of us should have priority. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, I mean, but I think that 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 distinction, delusion, and enlightenment has the same feel as what you as as the phenomenon of separateness that you were just describing. Yeah. Yeah, there is there's delusion within enlightenment. That's that's a sort of I don't know if Dogen says it exactly like that, but he says things like that all the time. Right. You know, and, and he and he says delusion isn't something you're fighting against. You know, and you're not trying to put it you know, put down your delusion. You're just sort of working with the specific delusion that you have. You know, in order to try to make the thing happen that that needs to happen, I feel like there's a certain thrust of the universe, and we are we are part of that. You know, as much as 
the sun or the planet Saturn is part of that, you know, and we're, we're another, we're another manifestation of the same process that, that this cosmos is, is undergoing. And, and our position is, is rather specific, but, uh, and, and, and you don't want to despair. The one thing that a lot of sort of meditation forms get wrong, I think, is they want to kind of zoom out into the cosmic perspective, you know, whoo, you know, and leave right. this and leave this one behind. And that's one of the things I like about Dogen especially and, and Zen in particular and the way Dogen taught Zen is he's saying you we're not trying to leave this human perspective behind and go off somewhere else. We are acknowledging though that there is another perspective, which I guess a lot of people doubt <laughs> you know well, but yeah i mean you put, you put it uh like i think if you're present to the delusion in a way uh as you said the delusion becomes more porous it's it's not like it necessarily goes away right it's just no it, it, it's it's function changes or our function yeah. with relationship to it changes but we still have that uh perspective right i mean yeah you 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 can know that that it's a kind of delusion and and work with it as a kind of delusion you know uh, and and i and i think that's a better way to do it than to be steeped in the in the delusion so much that you don't even know it's a delusion anymore so and that and i, I guess that's what we're trying to get to and if there's any sort of end point in in Buddhism, maybe that's where we're aiming for. We're aiming for a, you know, I, I sometimes allow myself to to get speculative and think, well, what would happen if if this became a general sort of way of understanding? You know, there's so few of us who kind of do this, who understand things this way. Right. But but if it became a generalized sort of understanding among a lot of people. I think the entire way that we deal with everything would would fundamentally change. And I don't know. I, I'm nursing this idea that I have for another book that would be uh, sort of about aliens, <laughs> but not not exactly. Um, you know, I'm really interested in, in one of my side interests in in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and, and all of this stuff. And I and I used to want to believe in UFOs, but I find I I can't anymore. Um, but um, as much as I'd like to, but the you know if if there is anything like us out there in outer space, which I think is given the largeness of of the universe, I think is is almost a certainty. You know. Mm. Uh, there, there, there must be other civilizations of some sort, uh, and there are probably civilizations that are that are older than us. Well, where have they gone? And and when I read what contemporary sort of writers about it think, they they sort of they're sort of projecting the particular mindset that humanity has has got right now onto a thousand or even a million years in the future, and saying, well, a more advanced society would you know, colonize, you know, space and, and have the enterprise and, you know, and I love Star Trek and, and, and the Orville. I really like the Orville. Um, but, but, but I kind of think maybe they're wrong. You know, I think, I think maybe as humanity develops, assuming we don't blow ourselves up in the process, we're going to start 
seeing things differently. And I, and I, and I think at first it's going to be a matter of conceptualizing things differently, but I think eventually even seeing itself will start to change. Even our physical sense of, of, of our, our perceptions will, will start to undergo change as I think as a person who studied history, I think people in the past probably didn't perceive, like literally perceive the world in quite the way we do. Uh, probably when they opened their eyes, they saw something different from what yeah. we see. That's my speculation. Yeah. You, and, you're making me think of uh, Ursula Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven. I don't know if you've ever oh, really? read that book. Yeah. Oh, is, is The Lathe of Heaven the one where the guy keeps dreaming? And, yes, that's and, the yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did read that one. That's yeah. the one. And, uh, and, so, and there are aliens in that one. So... Um, I should reread that one. I haven't read it for a long time, but I remember reading it in high school and going, whoa, <laughs> you know, exactly. that and Philip K. Dick and, and yeah. some of these other things. So so I think maybe uh, if there are extraterrestrial intelligences beyond ours, they might be looking at us going, oh, they're still stuck in that, you know, and uh, and. And uh, and maybe maybe it's going to to change fundamentally, and maybe one of the reasons for the Fermi paradox, which is one of these interesting things that that we we have all these sophisticated uh, things that are looking out in the sky for radio signals right. and whatnot, and we don't find anything, and we go, oh my God, there there ought to be something out there, um, but we um, how come we're not seeing it? Which leads to a lot of sort of pessimism among people who who thought there might be aliens civilizations but I, I i wonder if if uh if what they're putting on these civilizations might not be true but this is all just wild speculation on my point on my part so so i'm trying to figure out how to turn this from from just wild science fictiony speculation into something a little bit more solid well i'm i'm, I'm i look forward to reading that yeah. book <laughs> Yeah. So I hope I hope yeah. I hope it does go somewhere. Yeah. yeah, I haven't even started writing it yet. I'm just sort of walking around thinking about it a lot. But but this idea that uh uh people in different eras would see things differently is in itself kind of even metaphorical for uh what happens with spiritual practice because if you look at how you see things now, how things just show mm -hmm. up for you now, it's it's it is measurably different than how they showed up for you let's say when you were a teenager or yeah and there is something that changes or there and there's something i can't remember which chapter it was a it was a line in in in, uh, in your commentary in one of the end of the chapters where you you kind of just located this thing that was kind of like one of the most important things you felt you got out of your zen practice which was this uh understanding that a conceptual representation wasn't the thing yeah yeah and and that that seems like such a foundational shift that yeah. that you kind of take for granted if you meditate a lot and you've gone through a lot of practice, but um, it doesn't take hanging out in the ordinary world very long to see that that it is actually kind of a radical different way of uh, relating to what's going on right now than for people who are filtering everything through a set of interpretations that yeah. they take as true and mm -hmm. creates a very clear boundary of between what's true and what's not true. Yeah, you don't even you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah, and that's and that's right. a kind of an amazing thing when you realize because I can remember points 
and and they're always very hard to describe if I ever attempt to describe them to people. But I can remember points along this path of practice where I was just going, "Oh my God, it's not like that at all." <laughs> you know, you know this. You you've come you've you've come through life with a certain framework and a way of of like you say relating to objects and things and people, and it works for the most part. I mean, it breaks down quite often, but it, you know, it mostly functions. And so you assume it's true. You assume that that, that way that life has been framed for you is, is actually what's out there in life. And after a while of practicing, you start going, Oh no, that's, that's, it's all just concepts. Everything is just, everything you've learned is just a concept about a thing. It's not really the thing itself. So, you know, Zen Zen often says these, you know, weird things like the moon is not the moon and you go, whoa, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but but all they're trying to say is is that that the concept of the moon and the actual moon are are very radically different things. Yeah. No matter how fine tuned your concept of the moon gets, you know, it's still not uh, the actual thing itself. And and there is a way to to work on yourself to the point where you can start to put aside and you know, I don't think you can ever get rid of it but you can start to be able to put aside those conceptual ways of of dealing with things and actually get into the raw the rawness of of life and once you start experiencing that you go oh <laughs> this is this is totally different now yeah. you know everything changes when you when you do that yeah and the the sense of the other mystery for me is like the the realization of your you know the feeling state is often what we take as true. I can yeah. feel good or I feel bad or and with meditation, it's possible to uh, dig beneath the feeling state yeah. and, and discover this complex of thoughts and perceptions and interpretations that are kind of busily generating this miasma of feeling. Yeah, yeah. And when you <laughs> play with that or shift that, then it's like the whole universe changes. You yeah, know? yeah. I, I, I tell, I sometimes tell people that one of the greatest things about Zen is I no longer believe my own thoughts. And people go, "Oh, what do you, what do you mean by that?" <laughs> but I don't. You know, I, I have thoughts or I have opinions, and that, that sort of changes. You, you don't, you don't, you're not so. Uh, you're not so concerned about your opinions once you realize. That they, that they don't matter. <laughs> that they just, that they're, well, just, they're just an they're artifact. Just like they're, yeah. they're an artifact, like anything yeah. else, or yeah. you know. It's, I mean, uh, I have opinions on a lot of things, but I also feel like my opinions are just who cares what my opinions are. I don't even care <laughs> that much. They're, they're the things of podcasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could make a podcast about my opinions. Yeah. Brad's opinions on things. <laughs> just do that. Nobody <laughs> listens to that. <laughs> I like hearing other people's opinions. Yeah. It's kind, of, it's kind of funny. You don't realize how much of your life. I don't think most of us realize is spent rehearsing an opinion about something. Yes. You know, something comes up in the news or whatever, and you feel like, oh, I have to form an opinion on this. And and I get a lot of blowback from when I say, oh, you don't really need to have an opinion. <laughs> On it, you know, it doesn't. It's not going to change. For the most part, it's not going to change anything about about yeah. what's going on. Or, or more, and, more importantly, when um, uh, p- 
people expect opinions and you don't offer an opinion, then there's yeah. fallback. I, I I know that in some some of the controversies uh, sweeping through the Buddhist world that uh, um, sometimes people are expected to hold opinions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very strong opinions. And uh, if you don't, then uh, 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 you become an object of... Uh, of uh scrutiny yeah yeah that and that's happened to me a lot and i yeah. go oh, well, i don't really have an opinion on that uh or, or or i do have an opinion on it but i don't think it's important now, often my opinions are aligned with the with the basic buddhist you know the emerging american buddhist opinion on on whatever you know whatever it happens to be but um but i think we we should stop that <laughs> You know, my other opinion is is that is that we don't need to to be the whole point of this exercise we're doing is not trying to load people down with dogma. Right. So so if you're not gonna, you, you, we we know we're not supposed to load people down with religious dogma, but then we start loading them down with political dogma, and I'm, I'm going, no, that's the same thing. You're just loading people down with dogma. Well, well this gets back to that to that uh, communal practice uh, the, of individual inquiry. And yeah. and how and how you how you hold that balance? It seems to me. Yeah. But unfortunately, we're we're getting to the end of our time. It's gone oh, okay. by really fast for for me, and um and um I'm really looking forward to reading this this next book. Is it uh, <laughs> letters about? Oh, letters Zen? to a dead friend about Zen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. I'm yeah, like, so uh, it's an intriguing title. So yeah. so I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. I hope you'll join us in conversation about that. Yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, we're gonna. It comes out in October, so uh, that'll be the time when when uh, my publicist at New World Library is trying to get me on podcasts and things. So, uh, awesome. yeah, love like to do it. Um, so we have uh, the custom of just uh, inviting you to let people know how to contact you or get in touch oh. with whatever you're up to and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I have a. A blog which is hardcorezen.info, I-N-F-O, because we couldn't get .com because some, somebody owns it and wants to sell it. <laughs> so we just said, <laughs> screw you, we'll just take info. So uh, hardcorezen.info, and I and everything is sort of linked through there. I also have a, a YouTube page, which I start, or a YouTube channel, which I started, oh, God, almost two years ago as an experiment, and that seems to be going but I actually don't know how to find that. If you just search Brad Warner on YouTube, I think you'll yeah, you'll right. find you'll find yeah. my YouTube well, stuff. When we, when we post the uh, 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 podcast, we'll send you a link, and you can uh, put it on your website. And okay. we'll have we'll have links on that too for so for people to find stuff about you. Good, good. Yeah, that's that's good. So that's that's where I am. All right. Excellent. Well, well, we really appreciate uh, uh, taking the time this morning. I know it was uh, early for you, for a uh, and, and early for me. So, yeah. uh, um, but but uh, but I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. So thanks a yeah, lot. It's, good. it's been a good conversation. I always like having these. I, I yeah, it is early, but you know, <laughs> I'm supposed to be Zen. I'm supposed to get up at four thirty in the morning, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, but, but but you live in L.A., so yeah, 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 yeah. There's your balance. Right. That's it. All right. All right. Well, thanks so much for appearing on The Mystical Positivist. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Skype conversation recorded on April 19th, 2019, with Brad Warner. Brad Warner is the founder and head teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Dogen Sangha, Los Angeles. 
He is the author of the popular Hardcore Zen blog, as well as several books on Zen Buddhism, including Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality, Sit Down and Shut Up, Punk Rock Commentaries on Buddha, God, Truth, Sex, Death, and Dogen's Treasury of the Right Dharma Eye, and Don't Be a Jerk, and other practical advice from Dogen, Japan's greatest Zen master. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a telephone conversation with Roger Lipsy, author of the newly released Shambhala book, Gurdjieff Reconsidered, The Life, the Teachings, the Legacy. Roger Lipsy is a biographer, art historian, translator, and for many decades a participant in the Gurdjieff teaching. He is also the author of Kumaraswamy, His Life and Work, An Art of Our Own, The Spiritual in 20th Century Art, Angelic Mistakes, The Art of Thomas Merton, Make Peace Before the Sun Goes Down, The Long Encounter of Thomas Merton and His Abbot James Fox, and Hammerskold, A Life, which has been hailed as the definitive biography of Dog Hammerskold. Since the publication of the Hammerskold biography, Roger speaks in many parts of the world under the auspices of the United Nations Educational Service. Tune in for that show on Saturday, May 4th, from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, Follow Your Dread to the Mystical Heart, with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff, will be holding its first monthly Wednesday meeting at 7.30 p.m. next Wednesday, May 1st, 2019, at Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Story has it that in the very bottom fissure of hell, the deepest recess glowing with unquenchable fires, a simple drain cover lies unnoticed. Find and remove the cover. Descend through the narrow drain and emerge into the highest, most radiant realm of heaven. If this metaphor resonates with something in you, our practice group work that focuses upon follow your dread may resonate still more deeply. No one can be divorced from or denied access to the mystical heart, but to open and then live within the mystical heart of the world and ourselves has a cost. We don't get there by denying, sweeping under the rug, or putting aside the aspects that we dislike of who we have been. The mystical heart receives the light and the dark without judgment. So in our group and individual practice, we seek to cultivate a heart-mind that holds all contents of consciousness simultaneously with discernment and without discrimination. Following your dread is an undertaking best accomplished in the company of fellow travelers and with guidance from others who have gone before. Join us once a month at Many Rivers in downtown Sebastopol to learn more about this realistic path to the mystical heart. At the Thursdays at Many Rivers series in Sebastopol, The Wonderful W, a children's story especially for grown-ups, with Gwen Gordon, author of The Wonderful W. That's Thursday, April 25th, 7.30 p.m., Many Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. The Wonderful W is a story of transformation told and illustrated as a fairy tale for adults. Through Susian rhymes and quirky illustrations, The Wonderful W tells the story of our holiest holes and our wholeness that resides within us. Princess Willa has everything, but instead of enjoying her bountiful riches, she only laments what's wrong, bad, and missing. Until one morning she tries to wake up, but only aches up instead, because, to her horror, the letter W is missing. This W def deficit is a very big problem. People aren't, well, only L, which is too close to ill, and when wonder goes under, 
they feel even worse still. But that's only half the problem. What had once been a great seamless hole, without the wonderful W, is riddled with holes. There are holes in the ground and holes in the sky, but the erst of the holes are the ones deep inside. Princess Illa is at the end of her its, until one day, terrified but determined, she does the one thing left to do, and that's when the magic happens. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. <laughs>